Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Good morning. This is Tamara Coldren. This morning's scripture is from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Meanwhile, his older son was in the field working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never even gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is our third time through this scripture, so we've probably figured we have the story down pretty well by now. There were some teachers of the religious law who were troubled that Jesus seems to be spending so much time trying to befriend notorious sinners by not only helping them out, but palling around with them by doing things like dining together. He's either a naive fool or he's just like the singers he hangs out with, they figure. So Jesus begins to tell a series of stories, in part about things which are lost and found. 
There's a story about a man who lost one sheep out of a hundred and risks a great deal to make sure that that one sheep finds its way home. And when he found it, there was a great party. There was a story of a woman who lost a coin and in her search went through every nook and cranny of her house to find it. And upon finding it, there was a great celebration. And he tells a story about a man who lost two sons. The younger son got lost through the sin of unaccountable, wasteful living. The older son got lost through the sin of an unforgiving and graceless heart. Pay attention to the way these stories are framed. The first story has sheep, but it's not the sheep's story. It's the story of the heart and action of a shepherd. The second story has a coin, but it's not the story about a coin. It's a story about the heart of a woman. The story, the third story has sons, but it's not despite the headers in our Bibles, to the contrary, it's not either of their stories. Whose story is this? That leads to our first lesson this morning. This is a story about the Father. This is a story about the Father. We read in Luke 15, verse 11, Jesus begins this third story to illustrate, illustrate the point further. A man had two sons. In Luke 15, verses 31 and 32, The story concludes, the older son's father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was found, was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This story begins and ends with the father. It's about his heart. It's about his response. The sons are important players But the way Jesus frames this, it's not ultimately their story. It's the dads. This is one of those passages of Scripture that taught me one of the most valuable lessons about my life in Christ and how I get to live out my faith. My story, my contribution to the world is not insignificant, but it's really just part of a much bigger story. God's story of love, rescue, redemption, and restoration all throughout history and before the dawn of creation and into the new heaven and earth. In the context of the existence of the cosmos and our role in it, we as humans are undoubtedly important players, but I'll let you in on a secret. It's not our story. It's God's story. Here's one of the other reasons we know this is the Father's story. Jesus' original audience would have been absolutely astounded by the treatment of the Father. And by his responses. Here's what I mean. There was a pretty clear code of honor amongst the Hebrew people in Jesus' time. That was born in part from the Ten Commandments that were passed on down from Moses, which tell us, honor your father and mother so you may live long in the land. And the Hebrew law was held in high regard among those who were Jewish by ethnicity and religion, partly because it's how they upheld a unique and set-apart identity during their occupation. And then, add to that, the Roman occupation actually contributing to this culture of honor and shame. Honoring the father as head of household was a given. Lineage from a privileged patriarch, especially a landowner, was about as fortunate a blessing as you could accidentally receive in that time. And those boys should have been fully counting their blessings in the ears of that audience but instead they were perceived as injuring the father's honor. We see that in Luke 15, 12. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And so his father agreed to divide his wealth among his sons. 
Again, this younger son is basically telling his dad, I'd like it better if you were dead so I could have your money, but not you. I just picture this son being a little bit like Mona Lisa Saperstein from Parks and Recreation, very impatiently asking for money. Money, please! In many families, there are times when parents become basically like an ATM machine. Not even a bank teller, because we're just supposed to fork over dollars in dispassionate expedience. That's normal to some degree, and the audiences now understand that there are times when kids forget to be thankful. But this action of the younger son is beyond that. If we look at ourselves, we might admit that there are times when we want God's handouts, but not God's guiding hand, God's face, or the bonds of relationship. On one of my favorite U2 albums, Johnny Cash lent some vocals on a song called The Wanderer, where he sang, I went up to the church house where the people like to sit. They say they want the kingdom of God, but they don't want God in it. That's what the son was saying. He wants his dad's kingdom, but nothing to do with his dad. How is a father to feel about my life would be better if you were dead? The older brother lays into the father, basically saying, you're an unfit and unfair father. In Luke 15, 29 and 30, the older brother replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. This is the Monday morning quarterback approach to parenthood. John Wilmot said, before I got married, I had six theories about raising children. Now I have six children and no theories. This kid is telling his father that he's made terrible calls. He's telling his father he's woefully unfit. He's focused and complaining about all he's lacking instead of acknowledging the abundance at his disposal. He's upset because he saw his connection with his dad as a transaction, and things weren't exactly adding up for his column the ways that he thought they should. How is a loving and generous father going to respond to his critical son in response to his short-sighted runaway son? Well, he keeps watch for the runaway. His audience would have known that he did not have to. Based on the codes of honor and shame, that son would have been written off as dead and disowned. But instead, the dad kept watch. Jesus' listeners would have seen that as an embarrassment. And then the dad goes on to do stuff like running and gushing. In Luke 15, 20, he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Dads in Jesus' time were not known for doing that. They sure didn't have to. But he was simply embarrassing himself through this display of emotion. And yet he wasn't done. He goes on to search for and beg his firstborn. In Luke 15, 28, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in, so his father came to him and begged him. Dads simply didn't come find their stubborn and rebellious sons. It was the son's responsibility in the social order to come to the celebration that the father hosted. But this dad went looking for the angry brother. His father was so overcome with celebration and his desire for his family to be reunited that propriety didn't matter. He didn't care how he looked or if he was embarrassed by the cultural standards of honor and shame. None of that mattered to him. What gets us so excited that we lose all sense of decorum? I've seen church folks get really excited about someone putting furniture in the wrong place. 
or if they have to condescend to look upon a drum set, or if someone sits in their pew. I've seen people lose all sense of decorum if they feel like their church was getting too big for their liking, or if their political ideologies were somehow challenged. I've seen people in the church abandon several levels of propriety over stuff like that. But when does God's church get as excited about lost sons and daughters coming home? What if we choose to direct our excitement towards things like broken lives being made new, addictions being overcome, shattered marriages being restored, and people getting baptized into new life and new identity in Christ? Maybe we could get absolutely pumped about people living in God's security, relieved of violence and poverty and oppression. I mean, it's not proper and refined, but the father in Jesus story wasn't too worried about how he was received. He just wants his son's home and whole. That's the stuff God gets excited about. After all, it's God's story. The whole of history is God's story. It's not our story, but we get to choose if and how we're going to be a part of it. And that leads us to our second lesson this morning. Our worship life reveals our role in the homecoming story. Our worship life reveals our role in the homecoming story. As a pastor, it's hard sometimes not to take it personally when people bail on the church. And there are times when I know it's my failures, shortcomings, and faults as a shepherd that have caused people hurt and it's driven people away. As much as I'd like to be sanctified beyond my human faults, I'm not yet. That's a heartbreaking and unfortunate aspect of still being a work in progress myself when I'm trying to help others encounter the presence of God. I can't help but acknowledge that. There are also times when people choose to use offenses as an excuse. If you've never been hurt or offended by someone or something in the church, that's amazing. Because most of the churches I've been to have people in them. And when you get people who have not yet reached Christian perfection interacting with one another, there's going to be some hurt in that group. And someone has been wounded, someone's been hurt, and maybe they've been hurt foundationally. Maybe they felt betrayed by the church. And there are times when people just have to step away for a bit and recover. I don't know the source of the saying, the church is the only army in the world that shoots its own wounded. There's something about that which rings true, though I think lately the act of piling on to a person in unfortunate circumstances is spreading well beyond the church. Point is, as long as there are people in the church, on this side of eternity at least, will experience some degree of hurt. Can I tell you something? Unforgiveness and bitterness only increase our pain. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we have to subject ourselves to further hurt or tolerate injustice, but anger and bitterness will keep us away from healing and future growth if we harbor it in our hearts. What does worship have to do with all this? I think worship is one of the closest things we have on earth to the heavenly celebration Jesus describes in the parable. There are siblings who maybe we think shouldn't be here because they've been indulgent and wasteful, and we're so good and proper, and our moral superiority and their shame should be enough to keep them away. There are siblings who are so judgmental and critical that they should just get off our backs because who cares if we blew last week's paycheck down at the boat? Don't I feel bad enough already? It's none of their business anyhow. There are siblings whose music is too loud and they should keep it at the bars where it belongs. There are siblings whose music is too old and it should be kept at the funeral homes where it belongs. There are all sorts of things that we may not like about this celebration and the people who are at it. But all of that assumes something. If any of that were to keep me away from worship, I might have it in my mind that I'm the guest of honor at this celebration. But I am not. Celebration in this parable is not purely because the son came home. It was an expression of the Father's joy. 
the runaway son needed to know that in this act of celebration, he is reclaimed by the father's authority as a member of the family. The older brother needed to know through this act of celebration that the father's heart is more valuable than the father's honor, property. It was the father's celebration. And the siblings were invited into the father's joy. And if they were to be a part of the celebration, it had the power to absolutely change their hearts. There are countless excuses and reasons why we wouldn't participate in worship. But when it comes down to it, worship is God's celebration. As siblings, we're invited into the Father's joy. And if we choose to be a part of this celebration, it has the power to change our hearts as well. Third part of this morning's lesson is we align with God's story when we share the Father's joy. We align with God's story when we share the Father's joy. The parables of Jesus end with a bit of a cliffhanger. Did the older brother go to the celebration when he heard the pleas of his father's love? Why didn't Jesus finish the story? Because he wanted the Pharisees, those religious experts who wondered why Jesus would befriend sinners, to live out the rest of the story. The choice was theirs. Did they hear from Jesus the pleas of their father? Would they join with him in celebrating that the lost are encountering the matchless love of God and because of the presence of Jesus, they could start to wear the symbols and garments of the family of God, even if they still smelled like pig pens and prostitute perfume? Their story wasn't finished yet either. Would the religious leaders be a part of the celebration? The parable didn't end with that generation, of course. It's still being lived out today. What we do with the rest of God's story is up to us. Some of us may need to come to ourselves, experience a moment of clarity, drop the pride of a broken independence and return with some humility to our God. So the younger son returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Our siblings may not bless us right away, but we will be met with our Savior's embrace. Some of us need to drop the pride of entitlement and stop treating our relationship with God as a transaction. We might need to hear the heart of our Heavenly Father tell us, we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Jesus gives us a choice. He keeps giving us a choice. And the very best thing we can do Get close to the Father. Draw close to God. And when we do, we're going to draw close to one another. Our Lord is watching the horizon for us. The robe and the ring are ready. The musicians are warmed up. The calf is fattened. Will we come home? Let's pray together. Lord God, we ask that your grace would enter into our hearts in ways that call us to your celebrations. Lord, help us to be thrilled, to lose all sense of decorum and dignity, that lost people are found, that broken lives are made new, that all sorts of shackles, injustices, and oppression are being overcome in your strength Help us to be a part of that joyful gathering as we come home to you and find that there is goodness 
and mercy for us. However we may have been distant from you, call us near to yourself. Restore us. Make us new. Allow us to be a part of this homecoming celebration. And we are honored that we have been invited to be a part of your great, unstoppable, restless, relentless rescue mission. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.